Hola, hola, and welcome to a new episode of Quality Sense Podcast, a place where you can learn about software testing from different thought leaders that I have the honor to interview. My name is Federico Toledo, and I will be your host. Today I will share with you an interview with Nicola Lindgren. I was really looking forward to doing this interview because Nicola is one of these persons that I've been interacting with for a long time on Twitter, uh, learning from her, sharing ideas and perspectives. It was great meeting her. She's an experienced test engineer. She's a QA manager for us too. She landed in the IT world by chance, as most of us. <laughs> And 10 years later, she has become a well-known name within the testing community and just recently published her second book, which is called How Can I Test This? Her first book was Starting Your Software Testing Career. We had the chance to talk about her book. I've already read it and I strongly recommend it. It's full of examples by different testers on how to test a specific functionality or a specific system. I really enjoy it. Then we focused on a topic that Nicola has a lot of insights, which is how to test implicit requirements. This is something that all testers should be aware of in order to improve our test coverage and control the risks of our projects. So it's going to be a great episode, so get comfortable and enjoy the conversation. I'd like to thank my team, Abstracta, for sponsoring and helping me to create this podcast. Abstracta is a company fully dedicated to software testing that can work with you to push the quality of your products and processes to the next level. Hello, Nicola. How are you doing today? Thank you for Hello. being here and accepting the invitation, first of all. I'm so glad to have you here in the show. Thanks for having me, and I'm doing all good. So, Nicola... Uh, what about introducing yourself, uh, telling us your story, how you ended up working in software testing? What are you doing today? A bit about myself or where I am mm -hmm. right now. I'm a senior yeah. QA, QA manager at US2. In terms of how I started my testing career, I actually did not mean to fall into testing. I wanted to become a diplomat, so I actually went to university and majored in economics and German and also studied Spanish uh, and a bit of finance. So the hope was to be hired by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade in New Zealand. In the year I graduated, however, they laid off like 20% of their staff. Uh, so they had a hiring freeze, understandably. Um, and I remember seeing a a job ad for a grad program for a test consultancy, a surety. And they were asking for people who were curious, interested in technology, um, had strong communication skills, something like that. I figured, you know, why not apply? So one unique part of this was you had to write a handwritten cover letter, which I actually did. I don't write much things by hand these days, but I did back then. They, they trained me up. Um, I was alongside a bunch of people who actually wanted a career in IT or actually who had planned to have a career in IT. I didn't until I applied for that role. Uh, and the rest is history. I didn't really 
I kind of just went with the flow, so to speak. I started in test consulting, moved to a startup, uh, back to test consulting, and then now I'm at a product studio. Um, so yeah, I learned a lot on the way, uh, started blogging, speaking at conferences, uh, wrote a book, and uh, here I am speaking to you today. Oh, amazing. And now I understand maybe part of the, the background or the the context to uh, be writing a book to help others also break into technology or into testing, right? My, my hope with, with starting in your software testing career was to make a lot of my knowledge and other people's knowledge task explicit, right? Um, so instead of having to fumble your way or, or try to just figure things out, um, I wanted to share my experience and also interview others as to what they wish they knew or um, how to interview. So things that would be very useful for someone, whether or not they're earlier, earlier on in their career or later, um, having that information actually written down. Um, I actually learned a lot in writing that book. Um, for example, a crowdsource testing. I, I had a chapter on how to start your software testing career in terms of the path you can take. Um, I did a grad program. I didn't actually talk about myself in that regard in the book. Um, but often people would do like a horizontal shift. So from customer support, um, they would skill up. They would do um, like vocational training. Um, so go do some sort of one year or whatever degree. Uh, and then I also came across crowdsource testing, which I had only really heard about. And I really enjoyed learning from people how it actually helped them. Because I, when I came across it, I only thought of it as a way to like earn a bit of extra money or I didn't actually think of it as a way to upskill, truth be told. Um, but then a few people I interviewed told me how they were able to learn new things as a result of crowdsource testing or even better, how to get experience in something without getting normal like, experience. So often if you want to break into, say, um, you want to start testing mobile apps, right? An employer will generally ask or look for people who have experience testing mobile apps. But then um, someone I interviewed, I believe it was Heather, she was able to get experience in something by signing up to test, um, I think it was mobile apps, or signing up to test something um, through crowdsource testing and then using that on her CV to show she has experience. I hope that ramble made sense. <laughs> Make total sense. Uh, yeah, so using different platforms, I, I, I came across with the same, same idea when uh, trying to help people without experience mm. um, to build their resume to show that they not only to put a new line in the resume, but also to have their real experience and, and feel more comfortable or confident by mm. doing mobile testing, for instance. And uh, maybe in some cases it's easier to get an, an opportunity in those platforms than uh, for a company that in many cases, even though we, we are on a shortage of uh, mm. Uh, test engineers or mm. whatever role in, in the tech industry, 
we still look for years of experience or, or things like this, right? There's a shortage of, I don't want to say skilled, I mean, a shortage of experienced people, maybe. Like, yeah. soon as you get your first role, then I'm pretty sure any roles after that are a lot easier. Um, but that first one's harder. Like, even my husband, who's a developer, um, he struggled to get his first role. Uh, but now he's, uh, let's just say he's doing okay in that, in that regard if he wanted to move. You're in the US, right? Yes, you got it for yes. me. And also they had this in New Zealand, and I've seen this in Sweden. Um, there are these ads saying, ah, oh, um, there's such high demand for um, people, for developers and blah, 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 and for testers, uh, which is technically true, but they don't really add this little byline saying, but by the way, your first job is going to be really hard to get, right? You know, <laughs> they're not, that's not really sell. Um, but they do use that um, little tidbit of information to get people into their courses or educational programs. We got a little bit sidetracked, <laughs> but, I, but I get really engaged with this type, with this topic because, I, I, again, I, I find it very interesting uh, because it's not only solving the technical problems, but also is uh, how we can impact on helping to improve the quality of life of more people. And yeah. I believe that offering good job opportunities in our field is a way. So going back to uh, the previous question uh, or what I wanted to, to learn a, a little bit more about your books, uh, mm. because I know you have already published one and recently, but by the day this episode is published, uh, your new book will be also available, right? Yes. Uh, so how can I test this? I have four co-authors um, and they are writing a chapter each um, based on areas that they are strong in and I don't have as much experience in or any. So for example, um, Mike is writing a chapter on microservices, an environment in which I've worked in, but not specifically tested. I've tested in, in such an environment, but never in a way where I'm like, this is microservices. How can I treat it differently, so to speak? Um, and then I've got uh, Suman and Sean, who wrote chapters um, around mobile apps, and Phil, who wrote a chapter around a subscription or unsubscribing from notifications. Um, so it's, it's been quite a learning experience having co-authors because I want to keep everyone happy, and uh, that's um, it's not hard. No, I'm not going to say it's hard. Um, but you don't have to think about that when you're the only author for a book because yeah. you, you don't have to like try and read between the lines. And I'm, a, and I'm admittedly a bit of an overthinker. Um, but also it's interesting trying to make knowledge explicit. So the, um, the book is about examples. So instead of having a bunch of theory where you're like a little bit of example, all, all each chapter centers around an example and then you're told – how you would test this, what test ideas you would use, what tools you would use and why. Um, these are, of course, um, for demonstrative purposes. So if you had a similar um, feature or app, you would have to, it wouldn't be an exhaustive list because we're not aware of your context if you were to test that sort of thing on your project. Um, but I think it's a good way of learning 
how you can um, approach problems. So with, in writing the book, we've learned a lot from each other because like realistically, if you've got um, someone who's got like five years experience, someone with eight, someone with 10, someone with like more than 15, someone with 10, that's a lot of experience. And that's people who are going through reviewing, giving feedback to each other. Um, that's a lot of information to hopefully grasp. So you not only are gathering a lot of information and making it available for all of us, you also got that team interacting with each other and learning from each other in the process, right? Yeah. When it came to having co-authors, I didn't, I didn't really think about the aspect of learning from each other, which sounds silly now that I say it. Um, I just thought about, okay, uh, we've got our specialist areas that we're interested in. Let's just write our chapters and then have um, some reviewers give us feedback, address the feedback, and let's, um, let's publish. Um, but the thing is, if you've got, we're writing in Google Docs. If you've got a shared document, you can't not read other people's chapters. Like, you're not going to, like, go straight to your chapter and, like, ignore everyone else. You're going to have a wee nosy at their chapters. Um, and then you're like, oh, I should have thought of that. Oh. And then, you, like, then you, like, make some edits. You're like, oh, I really like how she did like that. And then you, like, makes it. It's like, and it's, I'm not the only one who's doing that. Like, I've seen a few of the others doing that. So that's been pretty cool. Um, and I... I really like learning. So I, it's nice having access to these people who I've never directly worked with, like on the same project, but being able to like pick their brain. That's, um, that's something I've been very grateful for. Amazing. Amazing. I really, I really like uh, what you're doing. And also I'm looking forward to, to how one of the, one, one copy of your, one of the recently published books. So Sweet. amazing. So, Nicola, we wanted to talk today about something. I, I know you you gave a talk about the topic about implicit implicit requirements. Mm. So, maybe for starters, what's your definition of implicit requirements? In my opinion, an implicit requirement is a requirement that has not been stated either in written form or out loud, like verbal form. Um, so it requires reading between the lines. Do you have any example? I hate to use a lot of examples. I'm trying to think of a more creative example. I would say for, okay, I'm going to use a long example because at least everyone is familiar with how a login feature works. Um, it works. An implicit requirement for a login feature could be, so it depends on the project as to what you have written down or what you've stated. It could be that um, characters on desktop as you enter it into a password field are in showing as asterisks or dots. Um, an implicit requirement could be that the submit button or this is in general or for a form is disabled until all of the mandatory fields have valid input. Um, so these are things that you may expect from the system or from the feature or from the app, um, but no one has actually bothered to say or write down. Maybe because this is the standard way we, uh, we, we are that used to 
see the applications we use every day behaving like this, that we yeah. know that it's well, part be, of uh, what we are expecting or what? It could be based on experience. So in my talk, I talk a bit about um, what influences or what, what factors there are. So your past projects, uh, your experiences of how you think systems should be. Uh, but there's a certain like, I'd say like good practices. I've read a bit about um, design and um, like consistency across a site um, is I think would be an example of a very common implicit requirement. Um, so when things that are similar, um, things that are similar should behave in a consistent way. Uh, so say uh, email address and the validation, <clears throat> I would expect it to be validated in the same sort of way um, for all email addresses across a site or for phone number, um, I would expect like the max characters and the allowed uh, inputs, um, allowed characters to be the same. It'd be weird if you had one field on one screen or one phone number field on one screen that had a max of 10 characters. And then another screen, it was a max of 12. And then on one screen, you could enter um, hyphens and the other one, you could not. That'd be really weird. That would be. But then whoever was writing the requirements may not bother stating that. They may just assume that the developers coding that know that this is how we do phone numbers at this company. Okay, got it. Quality Sense Podcast, where you will have the chance to improve your sense for quality by listening to some leaders who are amazing at what they do in the software industry. Are, are there other places where we should look for implicit requirements? Mm. Because you, you, you mentioned experience, mm. you mentioned consistency, maybe mm. that's related say. to some other requirements that are related. So if I'm, I'm developing a specific requirement, which is related to this other requirement, maybe there are some things that also apply because they are related. But is there any other place where we could try to find or learn or make explicit the implicit requirements? Mm. I often would turn to heuristics. Um, so when I think about testing against implicit requirements, it kind of blends in with testing without requirements. And in which case heuristics, which are um, like general rules of thumb, um, th those are a good thing to turn to. Um, so I have often used Michael Bolton's few hiccups. Uh, so the, there's a consistency um, within product one, uh, which is also one of the, is a, is a common design principle. Um, I have used Shivani Gubba's um, embrace for, uh, for API testing. Um, so these are it's good to have some heuristics at hand to turn to to help you find these implicit requirements um so i i do find them to be very helpful and what about non-functional the, the so-called non-functional requirements because my first position as a tester was uh, in performance testing and mm -hmm. i remember that every time i asked 
uh, a customer or someone in, in the team, okay, what's the expected time? What, what's the SLA for this particular feature? Uh -huh. And nobody uh, was able to provide a, a, an answer because it, it, most of the times it's not clear, it's not explicit, right? No, I mean, I've, I personally don't really have any experience with formal performance testing. I mean, I've, I guess I've done it in the sense that I've checked how the performance is, but I don't think I would ever call myself. I would, I would never put it on my, my LinkedIn profile as a skill. I'll put it that way. Um, because with performance, it depends a lot on like context because like how good your internet is, um, the sort of site you're using. So the degree of patience someone has could vary based on what they're trying to do. Like if you're just trying to like fill in a form and it's got like three, three pages, then your level of patience to get from page one to two would be probably shorter than when you're trying to submit that form. So it would be tricky to say to someone like what, how fast is fast enough? And then people may just pick an arbitrary number. Um, and answering your, your previous question about examples of implicit requirements, I really should have said non-functional requirements because people tend to expect that, um, but they don't bother saying. They think mainly about the functionality. Aside from performance, there's accessibility. Um, I believe in the US there's a law around that. Inaccessibility. Um, um, that's true. Yeah. That's true. And then um, uh, the security, those would be like the main ones I, I would think of. Um, yeah, you were giving an example of uh, a logging page. Of course, mm -hmm. it has to be secure. <laughs> yeah. But they wouldn't, but, they, but you're not going to yeah. be, someone isn't going to say, oh, um, it must be secure. Oh, they may say that, but really, I, I'm, I've never seen someone say that. Um, because they'd be like, well, everyone knows that. Like, why would you want your information to be out there or easily accessible to, um, to bad parties? Yeah, and, and when I say, of course, when I say, of course, it must be secure, I'm, I'm also connecting this idea of implicit requirements with assumptions. Because probably mm. the person uh, defining the requirements for a login page is assuming that the one working on that feature will have the same understanding on so many things. So why bother writing these uh, requirements? Because probably the other person, the, the developer or the tester or the team working on this feature, they will also understand the same I'm understanding. So do, do you also see a correlation between assumptions and implicit requirements? Yes. Uh, I think the a key difference would be, a okay, so an implicit requirement, a key part of that is requirement. It has to be there or should be there, right? It's required. An assumption is not. Assumption is a belief. Uh, so a, a way that the, these two could diverge is maybe someone in a product team has an assumption that the email address field will have uh, max characters of 50, right? 50 is the limit. But that is not an implicit requirement. So because 
the max character is actually 60. So they're, they're wrong. Um, but an implicit uh, assumption could be an implicit requirement. So, and it, to me, it depends on whether or not that person is right or wrong. And then often it does help to make your assumptions explicit um, or in turn also your implicit requirements and then seeing was it just an assumption that or a belief that you had or was it something that we do actually need to address? Hmm. Interesting. And should, should we try maybe as testers to make explicit what we understand there are they are implicit requirements? Yes. If you, as much as you can, yes. I, the reason is if you make clear what you like how you understand things then people can correct you you can get a shared understanding of how the system should behave because essentially with all these implicit requirements you're creating you are creating a model of the system but even if you were to take a step back and think about testing as a whole um i talked to you about like getting a shared understanding testing in my opinion is about trying to paint a picture of what the system is actually like. And if you're doing your job, in my opinion, if you're doing your job right, the picture you paint of the system corresponds closely with the reality. Um, so, yeah. It can help to find gaps between the, the what, what it's in our mind and what is in the reality. This is one you meant. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, that's about finding gaps, but about like having, like having the same picture. Like, um, people would often think that testing is about like finding all the bugs or testing against all the requirements. But you can't test against. It's hard to test against all the requirements because it's going to be very hard to know what the requirements are. You're dealing with known knowns and unknown knowns and all that jazz. Um, but then, for me. You're, you've succeeded as a tester in your role if you have presented an accurate picture of reality or to the best of your knowledge. So being like, this is what I've found. Um, and this gives you a very good idea of like, when you go live with this, this is what you would expect. Um, because I think a tester, um, well, what does I have failed? But if a tester um, spent a lot of time testing a feature and then it went live and their findings were very different then either there's a problem in testability uh, or there's a problem with the test environment or maybe the wrong tests were being carried out and you were so focused on one area that you should have probably had like um, a more overall approach makes sense and related to that maybe another question i have is What happens when you find a bug mm. that it's associated to an implicit requirement and then mm. you have a discussion about, uh, and maybe the developer, the product owner or someone assume it should work in a different way than what you are um, assuming the implicit requirement was. You know what I mean? Yes. So in that case, I would wonder what your oracle is. So an oracle is what you're using to tell you whether a behavior is wrong or right. On projects, this is often a requirement or a written requirement or a document or a user story. Um, so 
in I've been in this situation actually. Um, what what I would first do is see is there someone who could be used as an oracle whose opinion I guess trumps ours. Um, so I would see what they have to say because I'm not going to start this discussion being like I'm right, you're wrong, right? Um, at this stage, what I have as an opinion, what I have as an assumption, I'm not a hundred percent sure it's an implicit requirement. Um, if that person doesn't know and they try to pass me on to someone else um, or they may turn to me as a tester and say what do you think um, I would then try to explain my viewpoint as to why it actually is a bug and also try to make sure that what I'm saying and what the developer hears are the same thing that sounds a bit mm, weird but in terms of communication um, they may think that you're um that you've got a problem with something else. There might be like a, a miscommunication. Um, depending also, this also depends partially on how confident I am with my belief that this is a bug. Because if I'm very, very sure it's a bug and it's important, um, I will persevere. But in terms of picking your battles, if it's like a minor bug, like a UI thing, and there's an easy workaround or it's... it's like um, it doesn't seem worth fighting at this stage, then I may raise it and assign it to me um, or may rate. I think in some, I've seen in some bug tracking tools, it's not a bug. There's like a information, there's some sort of other category. So when um, at, at some projects I've been on, uh, the companies care about the sort of those statistics around like number of bugs and the severity. Um, mm -hmm. So I may handle it differently in the bug tracking tools. So there's some sort of um, evidence of it, but it doesn't affect the metrics when people care about metrics. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see your point. Um, and maybe do do you have with your team? Do you have like working agreements? or something to work these type of situations or anything related to implicit requirements? I have been working for a good period of time and I have earned the trust of my team. I'm actually currently on maternity leave, um, but the team that I was on for over a year um, before I went on maternity leave. So I've earned the trust from my team. Um, I've got credibility. They know that I know what I'm doing. So I haven't really gotten much pushback when I've raised bugs against implicit requirements. Um, so I think the context matters because it's one thing to have someone, a tester in your team who's got a lot of experience, who has demonstrated a lot of value raising these sorts of bugs because they're like, uh, Nicola knows what she's doing. If you are a new tester with a, a lack of experience, it's a different story. And then maybe a working agreement is needed. Um, I to answer your question, I do not have one. I have not had one. I don't know how much I would personally benefit from one because I've been good at communicating why things are issues and um, and like referring to the oracles, which explains why this behavior is right or wrong. But I do see how working agreement could be needed if um, either if you've had issues and agreeing on what a, what a bug is or what a bug is not, um, or if you wanted to um, get ahead of things. 
But you mentioned something that I find uh, like really, really important, which is explaining why. Also, of course, with the time in your team, you have you you earn that confidence. But explaining why probably helped in in er earning that confidence from the rest of the team. Yeah, right? like I mean, I I've never wasted time just like writing bugs and not like justifying why it's an issue. I do like when I would write them down or when I first start asking the questions either through slack or um face to face um i make sure to explain why because any bug um i find is a future is going to require time from the developer in general right um and i want to show why is this worth your time why why and how will this benefit our team um so even if it's not an implicit requirement Um, or even if the bug isn't against an implicit requirement, I make an effort to communicate why this bug should be addressed or what value is added by addressing this bug. Yeah, 100% with that. Uh, so, Nicola, I think this has this been very, very useful. I would like to um, uh, wrap up with uh, some final questions. One If you had to recommend a book to the audience, which one would it be? I um, I would have to say Atomic Habits by James Clear. I, I think it's when it comes to striving towards goals or working towards you know, something that you want to achieve, it's about the day-to-day. -day. It's about the systems you put in place. It's not about the massive things you do <clears throat> i had also read uh, the power of habit and tiny habits i believe it that's called um but atomic habits really just um it, it was a it was very concrete and i like concrete i'm not as good with inspirational truth be told um so i would really recommend that book if you have not read it already amazing it's gonna be in my to do list soon <laughs> in my reading list soon great and is there anything you would like to invite the audience uh to reach in social media access I, i will share your your website in the episode notes also the links to your book is there mm. anything else you want to invite the audience Um, so I would just like to say, if you know someone who's going to start their testing career, I highly recommend my book, Starting Your Software Testing Career. Um, and feel free to say hello on, mainly I'm more active on Twitter than I am on LinkedIn, but um, at Nicola Lindgren on Twitter. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for uh, all the information, all the your thoughts, for sharing all of this. Uh, very, very nice to talk with you. Thank Thanks you, for having me. I hope your sense for quality got better after this conversation. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe to Quality Sense Podcast. Tell your friends, your family, your colleagues or whoever you think can benefit from listening to it. I hope to see you soon. Adios, amigos. Thank you.